Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in selections of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Now, we need to do a quick history because I think everyone says, oh, Proverbs, Solomon. But I think it's deeper and a little bit more complicated than that. This is a complicated week. Those of you who are going to digest the text are going to struggle a little bit with it. So let's do a little bit of background and history, and then we'll kind of do a big picture. If you had to just sum up the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in a single thought, what would it be? I love the very beginning of it. It's Mishle Shlomo. We always call him Solomon, but... He was called Shlomo, so Mishle Shlomo, or the sayings of Solomon. That's really how it starts. Um, the son of David, the king of Israel. So the tradition tells us that this is really Solomon's stuff. As far as his authorship, I mean, that's in question. It says in 1 Kings 4.33 that he spoke thousands of them, covering all facets of the relationships of nature, man and God, and so forth. But whether the Proverbs that we have in the Bible include his works or all of them or how much of this is attributed to Solomon, I mean, I would say that's pretty difficult to tell. In the Hebrew Bible, this book, the book of Proverbs, is called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature in the Old Testament is represented by Proverbs, which we're going to cover today, Kohelet or Ecclesiastes, which we're also going to cover today, Job, and some of the Psalms. The Apocrypha has a couple other books that are considered wisdom literature as well, but know that the a big chunk of this wisdom literature in the Old Testament is going really to be covered today. And so when it comes to tradition, we talked about this, authorship is attributed to Solomon. And what's interesting is if you read some of this wisdom literature, you can see how some of the rabbis attribute it to different periods in Solomon's life. So for example, the Song of Songs, or what's called the Song of Solomon, the rabbis would say, well, Solomon wrote that when he was young. And then when you read Proverbs, which we're going to cover today, uh, many of the historians, many of the rabbis say, well, that was written by Solomon when he was in his midlife. And then when you read Ecclesiastes, which is like one of the themes of Ecclesiastes is, well, we're all going to die. What's the point? And so a lot of people say, well, maybe Solomon wrote that when he was old. (laughs) Now, I don't know, but just know that that's kind of traditionally it was where they take it. But the content of a lot of these really don't fit Solomon's time period. So just know that there's some sticky issues going on with history. I certainly don't know. I wasn't there. So I'm not really going to take a position. I leave it for you, the reader, to decide. But I would say this, that in the time period of the monarchy, there were a lot of people in scribal schools. And remember, once we have statecraft, once we can collect taxes, we can then issue literacy programs and we can train youth and the really gifted ones can become scribes for the king and they can go and work in what are called scribal schools. And we think that a lot of these texts were uh, replicated during this time period because remember, they don't have a printing press. So if you want to have a text, you have to have a scribe with a pen in hand, get busy. And so we think that many of these wisdom books were written and replicated during this time. Maybe it went through several editions. We don't have an Ur text or an original text. And I would say this, we probably don't have an Ur text of really anything. All we have is copies of copies of copies, and a lot of this stuff was oral. And we can also see this in history, that there were wisdom books that were written in Egypt probably as early as the 2000s BC, so long time before Jesus, long time before Nephi, even a thousand years before the monarchy with David, there were scribal schools in Egypt that wrote wisdom literature, and some of their works of wisdom literature are also in Proverbs. And so the fancy way that they determine this in scholarship is they call it Egyptian priority, meaning that the Egyptian wisdom texts have priority over the Proverbs. And there's some stuff in Proverbs that was probably copied from wisdom literature in Egypt. There's a Bible scholar by the name of John Collins, and he said this. He said, there are close parallels between the writings of Proverbs 22 and the instructions of Amenope, which suggests that the Hebrew composition was modeled on the Egyptian. The Egyptian instructions were copied for scribes in schools sponsored by the pharaohs. It is not clear whether such schools existed in Jerusalem before the exile. 
Nonetheless, the analogy with the Egyptian instructions suggests that this literature was developed under the monarchy to serve the needs of the court. Now, for me, that's not a problem because we have this guy named Moses. And Moses comes out of Egypt, and he probably learned the wisdom tradition. We have another guy by the name of Nephi, and he says, I use some of the learning of the Jews and the Egyptians to create scripture. So like I said, I don't have a problem with this, but just know that if you're a literalist and you have this position that everything in the Bible is untouched by human hands and it's like a fax machine from heaven, you're going to have problems with the book of Proverbs. Now, for me, that's not a problem. Now. There were some arguments in Israelite tradition over what to do with it. Should it be canonized? You know, we don't know if we should canonize this because Proverbs literally is riddled with contradictory assertions. There's a bunch of them. We'll do a couple of them in this podcast, but just know there's a plethora. Probably the most famous contradictory assertion is the 26th Proverb. I mean, this one's just so clear. Verse four, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. So in other words, if somebody who's a fool is talking to you, just don't talk to him. Verse five, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, do I answer him? Do I not? Well, it's a contradiction. The rabbis would comment and say, well, the answer to this is they're both true. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, and it's based on circumstance. And I think that's a really good way out. But just know that there's lots of these in the book of Proverbs, lots of these little contradictory statements. And so the issue was, well, you know, do we canonize it? And so some say that the way that they understand these contradictions is they look at the whole book of Proverbs and they say, perhaps this didn't come from one author or from one pen, but it's an anthology. And an anthology is just a fancy way of saying a collection that kind of took time to develop. In other words, that's kind of what the Hebrew Bible is. It's an anthology. It's a collection. It wasn't downloaded on a thumb drive from heaven in one shot. It took a long time. So big picture, what is Proverbs? It's an anthology. It's a collection of wisdom literature. Some of this stuff is really, really old. How much of it did Solomon write? We don't know. Did he write some of them? Perhaps. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But there's a lot of advice in here on how to live your life. And a lot of scholars put it together into seven distinct collections. And so if you're interested in how those collections are put together and why are there seven of them and how are they labeled, you can go to the show notes and you can read for yourself how it's put together. So with that, Bryce, what do you do with the Proverbs when you teach? This week, I think big picture really is a wonderful opportunity to talk about and ask yourself, have I opened the channel to heaven, and do I seek wisdom as Proverbs portrays it? And what fascinates me in the book of Proverbs is this concept that Proverbs calls wisdom is feminine. She, her. All throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is feminine. Now, I personally believe that the search for wisdom, which is feminine, is the seeking of the nutrients that come through my spiritual navel. And if I can be speculative, this is pure speculation, this is pure Bryce Dunford's opinion, but I believe that navel, that spiritual navel, is connected to a divine mother, that our mother in heaven is still tied to us. And through that channel, she feeds us. So the search for wisdom is this desire to connect with the divine. And if you get the nutrients that come from the divine, then you have, as the Proverbs talk about, you have wisdom. We have our own personal channel to divinity. So let me take you back to the Doctrine and Covenants and an insight that changed my life. One day I was pondering the word of wisdom and the language of the word of wisdom, and perhaps the greatest insight I've ever received was born that day. The word of wisdom, according to verse 3, is a principle with promise. Now, Mike and I talked in our podcast about two levels of the word of wisdom, the principle and the conspiracy. I'm going to skip that whole conspiracy conversation. If you're interested, you can go back to our podcast on section 89. But the word of wisdom is a principle with promise. So I began trying to say, okay, what's the principle? 
And I jump to the assumption that I think all of us make that the principle is health. So then I was reading in verse 8, and here's the promise, that all saints who keep and do these sayings, in other words, if you follow the word of wisdom, it says you will have health in your navel. And those last words struck me like lightning. The promise of the word of wisdom is health in my navel. I had always ended it with health, period. But that's not what the Doctrine and Covenant says. Health in your navel, marrow in your bones. So I laughed when I first thought that, that the promise of the word of wisdom is a healthy belly button. Why would I care about a healthy belly button? And then the realization came. It's not what my navel is. It's what my navel was. My navel was once a channel through which my mother fed me, nourished me, and took waste away from me. That navel was a lifeline. And what the Lord is saying in the Word of Wisdom is, the health of your physical body affects the flow of nutrients through that divine channel. So that's a totally different subject, that how do you take care of your body in such a way that you open up and let those nutrients flow? But the doctrine I want to point out is that we have our own personal channel to divinity through which we are fed. And this concept that Proverbs calls wisdom is feminine. Maybe it's feminine because it's tied to our mother, our heavenly mother, who still has a connection to us because spiritually we are like babes in a womb and that we are trying to be born and she is feeding us and helping us. Now, all of a sudden, that begins to make some incredible connections all over our doctrine and specifically all over the Book of Mormon. So now let's go to Proverbs and let me see if I can make that connection to wisdom and this idea of a navel, and we're going to connect it to the tree of life in the Book of Mormon. Notice in chapter 2, the definitive statement in verse 6, the Lord giveth wisdom. That's kind of the underlying reality here, is that wisdom is what comes from God. And I would say it's what comes through that spiritual navel when it's healthy. Now, when we jump to chapter 3, notice we get the reference in verse 8, it shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. That screams out to me, a connection to the word of wisdom. Now, I know the word of wisdom is taking it in a different direction, saying the body influences this, which is a subject for the word of wisdom. But if we go big picture, receiving through that channel from the divine— brings health to our navel, marrow to our bones. We receive from God. Now watch the connection get even greater. Starting in verse 14 of Proverbs 3, it talks about the merchandise of it, and the it here is wisdom, what you can buy when you have wisdom. Or in other words, what does that nutrient that comes from the divine allow to happen in your life? The merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. Now notice verse 15. She is more precious than rubies. Again, the feminine. Wisdom, or what comes through that navel, is more precious than any food that may go through my physical mouth, through my eyes, through my ears, it is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire. Now, that phrase rings a bell with me. That leads me to the tree of life. It actually says that in the text. Yeah. Look at Proverbs 131. To those that reject the tree, therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. But then... Verse 33 says, but whoever hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. In other words, they'll be fed by the tree. That's big picture book of Proverbs. When Lehi, Nephi, and Alma in the Book of Mormon describe the tree of life, or the fruit thereof specifically, the fruit was sweet 
but then it adds above all that was sweet. It was white to exceed the whiteness of anything that Nephi had ever seen. It was more joyous. And one of the descriptions of the fruit of the tree of of life is that it was desirable above everything else. In other words, it is more precious than rubies and all the things that thou canst desire. Now, that means that wisdom is manifest in the tree of life. Wisdom is what comes through the tree. It's the nutrients that we eat when we partake of the tree of life. And now we get to verse 18. Verse 18 to me is the crowning jewel. That wisdom, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Now, how many of those words are tied to the Book of Mormon? Desire, tree of life, lay hold upon it, grab the rod. You get the idea? The Book of Mormon is presenting the tree of life and the pursuit of it, getting to the tree, grabbing the rod, making your way through the mist of darkness. Don't be blinded by an imitation and partake of the fruit. The fruit of the tree of life is what Proverbs is describing as wisdom. So be wise and let God feed you. Open up that channel and receive nutrients from heaven. There is nothing on earth more sweet than the nutrients that come from the divine. So that's kind of the overall picture. Now, before I leave it, let me do a negative because Proverbs says, if you're wise, these blessings will come. And if you reject wisdom, these negative things will come. Back in chapter 1 of Proverbs, wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, this is verse 21, in the openings of the gates in the city where she uttereth her words, saying. So this is, if the fruit of the tree of life could speak, this is kind of a negative thing that she would say. She would say, how long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? The scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. These are the people who, like in Lehi's dream, are ashamed and walk away from the tree, or they feel their way to the building, or they never grab the rod and they fall into the river. Fools hate knowledge or wisdom or instruction. Verse 24, I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. You have set at naught all my counsel. Now, I can't help but think of Nephi's lament saying the same thing in 1 Nephi chapter 19, where he cries out, For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and the soul, others set at naught and trample under their feet. Even the very God of Israel, Jesus is the tree, Jesus is the fruit. Even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. Notice the language here, same as Proverbs. They set him at naught. And hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Jumping down to verse 9, they judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. But that's what wisdom is crying out in the streets. Why is it that you'll reject me? Why do you set me at naught? Now, here's the long term consequence. Verse 27 of Proverbs 1, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. It's too late. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Verse 31, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. 
so you can choose to eat the fruit of the tree of life and have that wisdom and nutrients and all the things that come from God, or you can reject it. Alma's going to pick up on that in Alma 32, where he talks about planting the seed. Now, once the seed breaks ground, it becomes a tree. Now, Alma says there's two possibilities. You can either nourish it or you can neglect it. If you nourish it, it becomes a tree whose fruit you will eat in the time of trouble. If you neglect it, it will wither away and you will cast it out. But then in the moment of darkness, when you need fruit to eat, you will have nothing to eat. You didn't grow the tree that produces the fruit that we eat in our darkness. And Alma's trying to say, do you see the connection? If you will grow the tree when you have a time of need, or in the words of Proverbs, when distress and anguish cometh, the tree will grow you. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, at the very end of what he labeled as the first one, the magician's nephew, this Uncle Andrew comes into Narnia. But he has a very, very different perspective of what's going on than Diggory and Polly have. In the end, he makes himself unable to be helped. Let me read from the magician's nephew. He says, we must go back a bit to explain what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and the children. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, which is a beautiful thought, Aslan brings about Narnia by singing it into existence. When the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, he tried his hardest to make believe that it, was, it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've let my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he wanted to. Later in the book, Polly comes to Aslan and says, Please, Aslan, said Polly, could you say something to unfrighten him? I cannot tell that to this old sinner, said Aslan, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. O oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. That's the gist of that idea. You've made yourself unable to receive his nourishment because you let the tree die. So the heart and soul of this week has to do with each one of us asking ourselves, what is the condition of my spiritual navel? Do I seek wisdom? Am I seeking the nutrients that come from God? Or am I neglecting the tree that eventually will dry up and I will lose my ability to be fed by them? I think that's big picture what's going on in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Everything else are just kind of the minor details that are trying to make that big picture point. Yeah, I think for the rest of this podcast, we're going to look at some of the details. And I see Nephi steeped in this tradition of wisdom. I also want to say, I think the word fool is a good word that's used in Proverbs. Maybe it's not the best, but I don't know what is the best. So we'll do this in the show notes. We're going to break down Proverbs 1-7 grammatically in the Hebrew. But I want to read it in the King James. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Literally, it's the fear of Yahweh, and then it's 
Reshit. And that's the word that's used in Genesis 1.1. We put a bait in front of it. You had Bereshit, in other words, in the beginning. But Reshit comes from Rosh, which is the head or the start or the chief. And so the fear of Yahweh is the chief or the first of Da'at, which is knowledge. So if you fear the Lord or you respect or revere the Lord, that is the head or the beginning of knowledge. And then it says the wisdom, Chokmah, and then you have wisdom and instruction, fools despise. And the word for fools is an interesting word. It's Evelim, which comes from the word Evil, and it just means a mocker, somebody that despises wisdom, somebody who makes fun of you, somebody who is quarrelsome. And if you think about how Nephi is steeped in this wisdom tradition, Nephi is actually punning on some of these ideas. In fact, I even think he's punning on literally the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. Nabal, if you remember, is this guy that when he meets David, David comes and says, hey, I want some food. And Nabal just mocks him. And he's like, I'm not going to give you anything. And then Abigail comes to the rescue and is like, um, David, don't listen to my husband. After all, his name is Nabal, fool. And then she kind of rescues him. And so that word for fool, Nabal, is actually inverted in Nephi's writings. Do we have somebody who's guilty, who's quarrelsome, who despises wisdom in Nephi's writings? That guy's name is Laban. If you literally take Nabal and you flip it backwards, the Laban character in Nephi's story is the fool. And then if you go a little bit deeper, well, is there anybody who's quarreling with Nephi and despises wisdom and makes fun of him in Nephi's writings? And the answer is, yeah, like his brothers. They're, they are the fool. Now, th- this is really interesting to me. I think this is important to note that there is a connection between Proverbs and the Book of Mormon. And I just want to tip my hat to Taylor Halverson. He wrote a really great article called Reading First Nephi with Wisdom. And we linked it in the show notes if you want to read the whole article. But I'm just going to sum up some of his arguments, which I think are really powerful. He says that there are many parallels to the advice of the wisdom literature in Proverbs and the Book of Mormon. The wisdom tradition, remember these scholars that wrote this wisdom literature, they had a goal in mind, and there are several goals that they had. Overarching big picture, yes, wisdom is a tree. Chakma is this feminine divine wisdom that's personified as a tree, but the wisdom tradition also advocated listening and recording the words of a wise father. Go to Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thy heart. What do we read with Nephi? Nephi, at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, says, Yea, I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. And I know that the record which I make is true, and I make it with mine own hand, and I make it according to my knowledge. What's interesting is that word for knowledge, da'at in the Hebrew Bible, it's a lot of places in the Bible, but just about half of the references in the entire Hebrew Bible are just in Proverbs. So if you think about how big the Old Testament is, and we have this little skinny book of Proverbs, and ha- almost half of the references to this are there. So whoever is writing Proverbs or this anthology of, of wisdom literature, this is a big deal. Another idea, the wisdom tradition advocates learning and education. Proverbs 1 verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. And then we read Proverbs 1 through 7. But then Nephi says that he makes his record, quote, according to his knowledge. How many times does Nephi talk about it being wisdom in God that he should obtain the records and preserve them for the language? Why? So that their children know the manner by which redemption comes. Another idea, the wisdom tradition advocates hard work. For example, in Proverbs 14, and all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. We see this idea of the hard work being advocated in the wisdom tradition in 1 Nephi 17, where Nephi approaches God and God tells him how to build the boat. The wisdom tradition also instructs one to seek knowledge from the Lord despite suffering. And we read this in 1 Nephi 1.20, where Nephi says, 
I will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he has chosen because of their faith to make them mighty, even unto the power of deliverance. And he talks about this at the end of 1 Nephi 1, how even though he's, quote, seen many afflictions in his days, that's in the very first verse, he has been delivered. And another idea. Clearly, the wisdom tradition clarifies the difference between a wise man and a fool. It's all over the place. I like Proverbs 10.1, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. And over and over again, we see this where, where Nephi is basically putting himself in the position of the wise individual and his brothers are kind of a foil where they play the fool. You know, Mike, that reminds me of this fascinating thought from Neil A. Maxwell, where he once said in conference, Laman and Lemuel also displayed little lasting spiritual curiosity. Once true, they asked straightforward questions about the meaning of the vision of the tree, the river, and the rod of iron. Yet their questions were really more like trying to connect doctrinal dots rather than connecting themselves with God and his purposes for them. I think that's a fancy way of saying they weren't opening up that channel. They weren't connected to God. Now, they may be talking doctrinally, but they weren't wise because they're not connecting themselves with God and his purposes for them. Even Nephi says that they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Yeah, I think that that's a clear indication. I think that Nephi is using them as a foil. Now, I wanted to say this about the wisdom tradition as well. If you go to chapter 1, it says in verse 20, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse and the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words. This is just gospel according to Mike Day. But what if Hakmath, this idea of wisdom, it's portrayed as a tree, as a divine feminine, and we'll see this in Proverbs 8. What if the truths of God or the truths of heaven are literally everywhere, and in in the context of verse 20 and 21, in the concourses, in the streets, in the gates, that's as public as you get. Now, there's lots of ways to read this, but one way is this. Everywhere you go, there's indication that God's wisdom is being preached. For example, we still, today, in 2022, come to earth in families, and you can't operate a family on principles of wickedness. The family will, will just crumble apart. And so in many countries, especially those that are non-Western, traditional family values are still taught, and they're still taught in tradition because it's the collective wisdom of humanity. I mean, if you look at the religious traditions of the world across many different religions, the core tenets, the, the basic beliefs, if you strip away all the details and get to the core, many of them teach core beliefs that resonate with our soul. There's a great podcast I would recommend for those of you interested in this idea that the core beliefs of many traditions in the world, many religious traditions, are echoes of wisdom and truth. The podcast is God's Many Voices, a conversation with Michael Wilcox on Faith Matters Podcast. I would highly recommend listening to that because I think Mike says it so well, where he talks about the main beliefs of all these different religious traditions— is God's voice being heard. You see, it's more than just in the scriptures. It's in music. It's in art. It's in the great dramas of the ages across many different languages and cultures. And I believe this in my bones. When I read verse 20 and 21, where wisdom is in the public spaces, I do see it. Now, there's obviously darkness, like Bryce talked about the tree, and there's the building. The building's doing the building's thing. The building's always going to be doing building things. And then there's the mist. But my point is, Wisdom is still crying, calling out in the story in 1 Nephi 8 through 11. It's Lehi at the tree, and he's calling out. Because remember, liturgically, that tree is in the Holy of Holies or the Debir, the place of speaking. So he's crying out, and he's calling us to come to the tree. And we are Nephi. We are the ones that are being called to come to the tree. So I just want to just emphasize that and, and just bear witness of that idea that I see truth and goodness in so many places. I love Crystal Stendhal, where he said, it is good for us to have holy envy for other religious traditions. How many times in the Doctrine and Covenants did the Lord say, come and bring the very best you have, and we'll add to it? Don't tear them down. Bring the best you have, and the gospel, the restoration, will add to it. Compare best with best, not bests with worsts. I think that we can 
look at the best that others have and have holy envy. Now, there's a couple places in the Proverbs where we're worried about this Isha Zera, this strange woman. She's typically inviting us to commit adultery, and it can seem kind of sexist depending on how you read it. I look at the strange woman as a type, meaning stay away from things we should stay away from. So I'm just going to read Proverbs 2. It talks about that we should be delivered from, verse 16, the strange woman, for verse 18 says, her house inclineth unto death and her paths unto death. There's kind of this idea in the wisdom literature that there's two paths you can go on. One is the path of life and one is the path of death. To me, I think this is the main message of 2 Nephi 9, and we'll put a graphic in the show notes, but 2 Nephi 9 talks about this idea that there's these two paths. You can choose the path of life or you can choose the path of death. And that is a big image in the wisdom literature of Proverbs. Now, in Proverbs 3, which Bryce laid out really well, the idea that wisdom is a tree and wisdom is this tree of life and we need to lay hold upon it, there's an interesting passage in verse 21 and 22. And if you're interested in the details, you can read more in the show notes. But here's what the text says. My son, let not them, these things or these words, the words of wisdom, depart from thine eyes, keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they, the words of wisdom, be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. There's another translation that reads as follows. In order that it, the previous counsel, will be life to your soul, that it may be grace around your neck. This is important, important to go after wisdom. In fact, in the fourth chapter, the main message is that wisdom is the principal thing. That's what it says in verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Now, a great way to read Proverbs 4, 20 through 27 is to consider your ways, like where are you going, or ask yourself, where will it end? Verse 20 of Proverbs 4 says, My son, attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings, let them not depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. And then skip down to verse 26. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let thy ways be established. In other words, consider where you're going and ask yourself the question, where will it end? I wonder, Mike, if that's connected to the armor of God, where our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We, we ponder our path, we ponder the path of our feet, and are those feet shod with the gospel? And that's what guides our path. I think that's what he's saying is wisdom will guide your feet to the right place. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come to understand that and that our feet follow. And so I wonder if there's a connection to ponder the path of thy feet and placing the preparation of the gospel on our feet so that leads us to where wisdom would lead us. Yeah. Now, Come Follow Me is skipping quite a bit of the Proverbs. In fact, after the fourth proverb, we're going to 15 and 16, and then 22 and 31. I do want to make just a brief shout out to the eighth proverb. And so we have wisdom crying out. She puts her voice out. And verse two says, she stands in the top of high places. Verse three, she cries at the gates. We're back to that image. And then she says in verse seven, for my mouth shall speak truth. Verse 8, all the words of my mouth are in righteousness. They are plain to him that has understanding. And then skip down to verse 14. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold. Yea, than fine gold and revenue than choice silver. Verse 22, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before the works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning to ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Remember the fountains of the deep, the Tehom, the creation period. Verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he meaning God, had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. 
When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree, meaning we're parting, the Lord is decreeing to the seas their habitations. He's splitting the seas. Before then, that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight. To me, this is just me, the way I read this is that this is wisdom calling out, talking about her companionship with the Father in the creation of all things. And then the message in verse 35, for whoso findeth me findeth life. Verse 36, all they that hate me love death. There's lots of ways to read this. I think one way to read it is if we let go of the iron rod and we don't go towards the tree, which is personified as wisdom in Proverbs 3, we kind of get lost in the mist. I think that's a great reading. Drowned in the depths is the language of Book of Mormon. Yeah. I think another reading of this is verse 33, hear instruction and be wise. To me, instruction as a young child came from my mother, and this is the feminine divinity basically saying, I was daily with the Father in the creation of these things. So another way to read this is to understand who I am, a divine son of heavenly parents, and that I have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And that if I understand that, then I can find life. And then I can understand my role. And I'm connected to them. I really have a connection to them. Like a baby in a womb has a channel to that mother, so do we have a channel to divine parents. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, in the very next chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, wisdom built her house out of seven pillars. Skip down to verse 5. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. So once again, we're coming to the tree liturgically. We're eating bread and drinking wine. This is the feast in the temple. We practice it with the sacrament. But in this context, it's wisdom inviting us to come and feast. And so we get echoes of these things. And I think that to me... I think one of the reasons why this is in here, I just don't think that the apostasy got a hold of Proverbs 8. I think that some of these things slip through. So I really like this stuff. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. So chapter 15 is a lot of, well, here's what wise people do. Here's what foolish people do. Here's how you can identify people that are connected to wisdom. Here's the fruit of wisdom. And so here's a few examples. Yeah, I mean, these are good. This is good stuff. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. That's Proverbs 15.1. Verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction. Or verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. I, I like verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. In other words, would you rather be poor where there's love or be rich and just have hatred in your family? And so some really good bits of wisdom. When it comes to contradictions, I'm just going to throw this out there. Proverbs struggles with what to do with bribes. The word they're going to use in the English King James is gifts, but here it is. Go to the 15th chapter, verse 27. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. In other words, if you hate bribes, then you're a really good person. And so are bribes good or bad? And the answer in Proverbs is, well, it depends. I mean, go to chapter 17, verse 23. 1723 reads, a wicked man takes a bribe or takes a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. So there in Proverbs 17, 23, bribes are bad. But if you go to 2114, this is what it says. A gift in secret pacifieth anger and a reward in the bosom, strong wrath. In other words, well, a bribe might be good. And I'm not going to settle it for you. I'm not here to settle the question. But just know that Proverbs does this kind of thing. And so literalists can get into trouble when they take Proverbs literally. And then atheists love Proverbs and other books because they can kind of pick it apart and say, well, if you literally take everything, then what do you do with these contradictions? And I don't have a problem with it because I'm not here to settle that. But There's some other good ones that I think are universal, like 1611, a just weight and balance are the Lord's, all the weights of the bag are his work. In other words, we've got to live in a world where we have just weights and measures. At verse 16, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? I find it interesting that the plates that Nephi gets are brass. In other words, Laban, who's the fool in Nephi's narrative, 
all he saw was the value of the metal, but Nephi didn't care about that. He cared about wisdom and how much does Nephi talk about this? So there's some good stuff in there in 15 and 16. Okay, now we're going to skip to 22. 22 verse 6 is probably the main one if you're teaching a Sunday school class. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, we could liken a child to a little baby tree. If the tree's growing crooked, it's easier to kind of fix how the tree's growing when it's little than if you let the tree grow crooked over a long time. Yeah. So when we get to the very last chapter of Proverbs 31, who can find a virtuous woman, her price is far above rubies. This certainly is a literal application. You can certainly take these words literally, but it sure seems to me that this is kind of emphasizing the gist of this whole book, that the virtuous woman here, yes, there's a literal interpretation. I don't want to diminish that, but the virtuous woman here is wisdom. And if you have married wisdom, if you are the husband of this virtuous woman, then your life is richly blessed by it. So I think this is a commentary on the whole book. Certainly, you can make reference to Jesus is married to a virtuous woman, and that is the church. And if you find the church, if you can gather to that virtuous woman, which is the faithful church and Christ's bride, then all these riches' blessings will come. So I think there's value in seeing chapter 31 as symbolic of so many other symbols that that virtuous woman represents, like wisdom itself. Yeah. I really like verse 10. Virtue is certainly good. There really isn't one great word for this. I'm going to give a couple different ways to look at it, and, and you can pick. But the idea is that who can find this woman that has chayil? And that word chayil can be strength or force, efficiency, or wealth, or might, or valor, or even power. Dunamis in the Greek a lot of times is translated as virtue in the New Testament. We'll see this extensively. And dunamis is that word for dynamite. So sometimes we take virtue and we think, like when the Savior says, virtue has gone out of me, we can kind of miss it. But the idea is that it's power. And I think Chael in this instance probably would be better read as who can find a strong woman or who can find a worthy woman. But really, it's like a powerful woman, like a woman who is full of life or full of force or valor. This idea of a virtuous woman or a powerful woman is the wise woman. And this is a poem about her. And it praises her energy and her economic talents, her personal virtues. This isn't really one specific woman, but it's like an ideal or a paragon of female virtues, and they're essentially shared by the ideal man that's described elsewhere in the text. But in this case, in this chapter, she's a proud and splendid woman, and she is a mistress of a prosperous manner. And so this is a woman who has considerable independence, and she interacts with people outside of her home. She's conducting business in the outside world, and she's even acquiring real estate. And so this allows her husband to spend time sitting in the city gates, perhaps even serving as a judge or helping with civic matters. And so a lot of commentators have interpreted this passage as an allegory with the wise woman representing wisdom itself. So what if this is, yes, this is a wise woman, a powerful woman, but what if this is also the embodiment of what wisdom is, like it's growing? Look what is happening in verse 13. We're seeking wool and flax and working willingly with our hands. Like merchant ships, we bring food from afar. In other words, this is prosperity. So the tree, the tree of life, everything it touches brings prosperity. So there's lots of ways to read Proverbs 31. I certainly am not here to tell you which way to read it. But if you're a woman who, quote, doesn't hold her hands to the distaff, that's verse 19, it doesn't mean you're not wise. I'm just giving you different ways to read it. I think it's really beautiful. I also think it's laden with temple imagery. For example, look at verse 22. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple, and her husband is known in the gates. Well, what's that? I mean, we could talk about the husband being the savior and the tapestry and the clothing and the silks and the purple as images of the temple. Like I said, there's lots of ways to read Proverbs 31. Now, you know, before we jump into some of Ecclesiastes, I just want to say this. Um, 
Ecclesiastes is not necessarily the gospel. Whenever I teach Ecclesiastes, I always say, okay, guys, we're just going to look at what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. I'm not saying like this is the gospel. Make sure you have a foundation of truth before you read it so that you can recognize what's good and what may not be as good. Right, right. I mean, because really the theme of it is Hevel or this word vanity. Vanity or Hevel can be a lot of things, but I mean, I love the footnote. If you look in Ecclesiastes 1, footnote 2b, empty, fleeting, unsubstantial, that's what it is. Hevel can be vapor or mist, but the idea overarching, like the writer of Ecclesiastes is basically saying, listen, we are all going to die. Everything's vapor. We're all going to go to the ground. And so what's the point? Live your life, live it for today, eat and drink and be merry. Now, Peter Enns is one of my favorite Bible scholars, and he has a lot of wisdom when it comes to the Bible. Peter Enns says this, The main character of this book, named Kohelet, is at the end of his rope. He's seen enough in his life and thinks wisdom is one big fat waste of time and effort. He drops bombs like this, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase in sorrow. And later, Do not act too righteous, and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Peter Enns goes on. He says, the writer sounds kind of upset. Maybe he hasn't read Proverbs yet, or maybe he has, and it's not working out for him. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, sitting side by side as they are in our Bible, the Christian Bible at least, are a beacon fire on a hill, telling us in no uncertain terms that the Bible is not an instruction manual for the Christian life, but is something to be wrestled with. Koholet is the most pessimistic person in the entire Bible. If you read Ecclesiastes, you can't count on God, he says, and wisdom makes no practical difference, because at the end of the day, we're all going to die anyway. For a Kohelet, death, in a word, is awful. Death is permanent, life is temporary, and death is ultimately going to win. Seeking wisdom to live better, as Proverbs says, is a cruel, divine joke. I mean, this is harsh stuff, but, but this is really what's going on in Ecclesiastes. Ends goes on. He says, and don't try telling Kohelet that everything will work out in the afterlife. He's not convinced there is one. All we know is that we die, and to add insult to injury, after you die, you will quickly be forgotten, just like you've already forgotten those who died before you. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty tragic stuff. But I certainly don't think that Nephi would agree with a lot of these things. And I don't mean to be a contrarian with this book. I'm just trying to look at it and read it for what it's saying. To me, it contradicts a lot of the message of the New Testament. In fact, it contradicts a lot of the message of the other books in the Hebrew Bible. But yet, you can also ask yourself and say, well, then why is this in here? And I think one thing we can take out of it is, well, there is some great wisdom here. We should eat and drink and enjoy the good of our labor that is under the sun, because we don't know when we're going to die. Life can go by fast. We can kind of sometimes be so focused on the future that we miss the todays. And I think if we teach Ecclesiastes that way, I think we can say there is some wisdom to it. Joseph Smith, the great prophet of the Restoration, did declare once, destruction to the eye of the beholder seems to be written by the finger of an invisible hand in large capitals upon almost everything we behold. So there is an idea here that everything's going to disappear, that this is a mortal life and holding on to mortal things is silly. But instead of taking it to the eat, drink, just give up, throw your arms up and give up, it's find the right things to do build an eternal kingdom in a world that's disappearing. So there is a wise element here that we are strangers on this telestial planet that's going to disappear, and we are trying to create a celestial life for ourselves. So do your best. Yes. There is some wisdom in Ecclesiastes, and I think the wisdom is we do need to live today. We do need to eat and drink and spend time with our family you can see why some rabbis look at Ecclesiastes as the wisdom of an old man that's lived a long life. And it's almost like this old man is putting his arm around you and saying, hey, you see that child and you're raising that child and you're worried about saving for their college education and you're, you can't wait till they go to school to when you can get your time or you can't wait for such and such to happen. That old person would say, you know what? Enjoy it because it's going to happen so fast. 
And I think that's one of the messages of Ecclesiastes. Now, I do want to say this about authorship. Verse 1 of chapter 1 seems to indicate that it's Solomon. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In scholarship, they're going to call this Kohelet, or the preacher. The internal evidence to the text really does date this to a much later time period. In fact, there's a great biblical scholar, his last name is Xiao. He basically argues convincingly on linguistic grounds that this text, as it sits now with the language that we have, is probably written about 20 years before Alexander the Great comes to power. So Sal puts it at about 350 BC. Now, that doesn't mean that that's when it was originally written. That's kind of the text as we have it. Maybe it went through several editions. We don't have an Ur text or an original text. We probably don't have an Ur text of really anything. All we have is copies of copies of copies, and a lot of this stuff was oral. But based on what we have in front of us and based on some of the best scholarship out there, you know, this is probably put together around 350 BC. Now, go to chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What profit hath he that worketh and that wherein he laboreth? Verse 12, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. In other words, we need to live for now. Verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is a gift of God. Why? Why do we need to eat and drink and and enjoy life today? Verse 16, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. In other words, the author is basically saying, hey, there really isn't any justice. Now, this is indicative of the wisdom literature known as Job. In Job 19.7, if you remember, we read that and we translated that, Job is essentially saying, listen, there's no justice. And so if you go to the 19th verse, the author of Ecclesiastes says, that which befalls the sons of man befalls the beasts. Verse 20, they all go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to the dust again. Verse 21, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? In other words, enjoy life now because we don't know what's going to happen. The author of Ecclesiastes is not preaching about the resurrection, not talking about even living after we're dead in the spirit world. And so go to the ninth chapter, verse four. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. You see, the theological view of the writer is that once we're dead, that's it. We're unaware. We're as no more. It's actually worse than we read in the Odyssey. If you've read the Odyssey, there's this bit where Achilles is speaking to Odysseus from hell or from Tartarus, and he says, I would rather be a slave than a dead warrior. And yet here in Ecclesiastes, it's even worse. I mean, the author is saying, I would rather be a living dog than a dead lion because a dead lion doesn't know he's dead. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that theological perspective. I believe that the dead, when they die, they know they're dead and they're in the spirit world. And so I kind of went on this little rambling where we add a bunch of scriptures from the revelations of the restoration, which testify of this. And really, a lot of this is coming out of Alma 40 and section 138. We give you some good commentary there if you're interested in the show notes. So just know that if you're standing in front of a class and somebody raises their hand and they say, well, Ecclesiastes 9 says that, you know, you die and that's it. um, It's okay as a teacher to go, yeah, yeah, and I know that's what it says. And then say, well, Alma 40 says this, and you can take them to the revelations of the restoration. Now, will that happen to you in a classroom? I don't know. I've had it happen to me before where we're going through Ecclesiastes and I'm kind of cherry picking what I want to teach. And then a student will, will hit me up with, well, what, what's this? And so the way I approach Ecclesiastes now when I teach it is I just lay all the cards on the table and I say, hey, this is what it's saying. I don't necessarily agree with everything. Um, and by the way, neither do the New Testament authors. The New Testament authors if they had Ecclesiastes 9 in front of them, would take issue with some of this stuff. But it's in there, so I'm just acknowledging the elephant in the room. Yeah. Mike, I think the most famous chapter of Ecclesiastes, probably the most quoted, is chapter 3. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And then it lists a bunch of opposites, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck. 
I mean, even Kevin Bacon quotes this in Footloose, right? There's a time to dance. I think there's a doctrinal background here that we need to understand, a doctrine that's taught, but there's also a caution. The background, I would say, is that there are different times and seasons in our lives, and there are focuses that we need to make. When my wife and I had a lot of young children, we, we struggled because we couldn't go to the temple as often as we wanted to. We just didn't have babysitters. We were far away from a temple, and so that meant traveling several hours. And, and I mentioned that to a good friend, and he just simply put my mind at ease and said, Bryce, the time of life you're in is for raising young children. There will be a time where you can more readily go to the temple. Focus on the task at hand. And I think that's the idea is embrace the time that you're in. And don't necessarily lament over, well, it's not a time to do that. But I think there's also another thing here, and that is that the Lord will prosper us according to the circumstances we're in. I love this verse in Alma chapter 48, speaking of the war chapters in Captain Moroni, it says, this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land. Or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land, yea, warn them to flee or prepare for war according to the danger. And also that God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies, and by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni. In other words, sometimes you are instructed by the Lord to lay down and take it, like the anti-Nephi-Lehites did. Sometimes you pick up a sword and you fight. Sometimes you run. And I think that's the doctrine, is that if we're going to commit to following the Lord, if we're going to keep our covenants, then the path that he's going to take us on has different times and different seasons. And there is a time to fight. And there is a time to lay down our weapons. There is a time to do all things. But the key here is you don't determine when those times are as much as the Lord determines, or maybe the season of life we're in determines them. For example, he's not going to rescue me. He's asking me to row a little bit longer. That's the season I'm in today. Therefore, I'm going to gird up my loins and I'm going to row as long and as hard as I can. There will come another day, another season, another time when it's time to be rescued. Now, the caution is we need to be very careful that we don't necessarily overstep our bounds and say, well, now it's a time to kill because I think it is. We can't use this as justification to do wrong. That's not what is meant here in Ecclesiastes 3. I think it's geared to help us say, trust the Lord. There is a time to be rescued. There is a time to not be rescued. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There will be periods of your life that are times to laugh, and there will be periods of your life that are times to weep. Embrace the journey and trust that God has a glorious ending of this journey, but that that path is going to have very many different scenes to observe. Embrace all of them. Yeah, I think that's key. Now, in this week's Come Follow Me, they have you end in 11 and 12. We have stuff on chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. If you get into the weeds on some of the verses that seem a little bit tricky, we give you some good commentary there if you're interested in the show notes. Uh, But for now, just go to chapter 12. And the 12th chapter, to me, is a curveball. We have so much advice of just live now and enjoy life because we don't know what's going to happen. Everything is vanity. Verse 8 says, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Skip down to verse 12. We think an editor added these last three verses, and the reason why will be plain soon. Verse 12 says, And further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good 
or whether it be evil. From my reading of Ecclesiastes, the main message is that, you know what, life's going to go by really fast, you're going to be forgotten, everything's vanity, so live life today. And yet the last bit seems almost as if it's another author saying, okay, we know there's a lot of writing and there's a lot of this great study, which is a weariness of the flesh, but let me get to the point. Verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so a lot of people look at that and say that was added later. It's almost like, imagine if you've just finished reading First and Second Nephi, and the very end of Second Nephi read something like this. Brothers and sisters, let me sum up my words as follows. I, Nephi, say the conclusion of the whole matter is this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And you would read that and go, did Nephi write that or did layman sneak the pen and like sneak something in there? So I submit this to you as one way to read the ending. To me, the 12th chapter is a curveball. So do your best. Yeah. Now, I want to remind everyone as we conclude of something the Lord said to Joseph Smith in the 91st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph is translating the Old Testament, and he asks about the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are a set of books that are of questionable origin or of questionable value. And Joseph asked the Lord, should I translate the Apocrypha? And the Lord responds in a very fascinating way, and I would invite you to apply this to your study this week and come follow me. The Lord says in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord unto you concerning the Apocrypha, There are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. There are many things contained therein that are not true, which are interpolations by the hands of men. I think that's true of Ecclesiastes. So the Lord says it is not needful that you should translate, but does say this, Therefore, whoso readeth it, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth, and whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom, and whoso receiveth not by the Spirit cannot be benefited. So read Ecclesiastes, read Proverbs, let the Holy Ghost confirm the things that are true and applicable and will lead you to that tree that will give you health in your navel and marrow in your bones. Where there is truth, it's beneficial to us. Where there is error, we need to be warned and we need to walk away from it. Beautiful. Thank you for spending your time with us this week. We will see you next week when we cover Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.